Women on Screen Out Loud is proudly supported by Company 3 Toronto. Company 3 is the leading post-production provider to the world's top content creators. Welcome to Women On Screen Out Loud, giving a platform to women in the film industry who challenge, motivate, and inspire on all sides of the camera. We are your hosts, Lara Jean Korostecki and Jennifer Pogue. The term imposter syndrome is a common hurdle that many of us face on our various career journeys at some point. In her essay, You Can Be You, Film executive Sharday Hardy candidly discusses her struggles with the expected film professional mold and her path of discovery to celebrating the individual just as they are. I don't know if anyone sets out to be an outsider. Human nature is to want to fit in to want acceptance. But for many, like myself, there are predetermined factors that will always set us apart. But despite our varied socioeconomic backgrounds, racial makeup, and ideals, we have all found our way to this industry threaded together by the belief that this form of storytelling is important. Growing up in rural Canada, I never dreamed that I would one day work so closely with the content I spent my childhood devouring as I hid inside from both the scorching prairie summers and the bleak glacial winters. At 15, I left home, finding solace within the punk community, attending shows in the dusty basements placed below the living rooms where I slept. At that time in my life, I had very little room for dreams. Needless to say, I started my career pretty late. At 27, I sat in a big boardroom explaining to the people interviewing me, no, I had not gone to film school, but I had worked so hard to climb my way to a better life. I tried to make them understand how deep my love and knowledge of film was, to convince them to take a chance on me. Plus, I knew Excel. So at 27, I'm working at a major movie company, and I am thrilled. During my time there, I often wondered what my career path would have been like if I had started at 20, like so many of my peers at this company. Would I be further along in my career? This company is a good place to build my foundation, to better understand the landscape of film, and seemingly I am moving along quickly, until I'm not. In this stagnation, I start to recognize just how much I had limited who I was, trying to fit into the idea of what a film professional should be. I dressed more conservatively, mostly covered my tattoos, kept separate my extracurricular activities of running an annual music festival, and bit my tongue as best I could. And yet, after years of doing my best to conform to how my superiors and colleagues were, I wasn't any further along. Granted, I don't think anyone there would say I was shy about making my presence known. But to me, I still felt like I was being held back from being my fullest self. Worst of all, I felt small. I learned very quickly that there are many facets to this industry, many types of people that make up this ecosystem, varying levels of passion, varying opinions on where film sits on the spectrum between art and commerce, but mostly that there is a real divide within the industry. Silos of those who work on set, those who are deemed creatives, 
those who are big-time executives, those who produce, and those who work behind the scenes, heads tucked deep in Excel and Outlook for hours on end. What shrouds these divisions is a narrative of hierarchy, a false sense of importance and contention as to who really makes movies happen. Personally, I tend to shy away from labels, whether that be residual feelings from my angsty teenage past or from my present thinking that we shouldn't put limitations on ourselves. We all have capabilities and talents beyond what we show the world. Just because we don't share them does not mean they will not emerge one day. When I left the company where I started my career, I began leaning into being myself, and that is when I really started thriving. What I realized was that everything that made me good at my job were the very things I felt I had to hide because they were so far from the traits of many of the people I saw within the industry. I know for myself, I don't want to become the kind of film professional we have historically seen. I want to be myself, but as an executive. Not just in my appearance, but in applying my outlook and ethos to all the work I am doing. We have rallied around knowing the homogenous mold of who the decision makers are is not working, that the industry has become stale. So why do we continue to fold ourselves into their image just so we can have a seat at a broken table? Now is the time for a cultivation of new voices and for new stories to be brought to the forefront. Without individuality, how do we accomplish this? Being a part of a punk and DIY community has taught me that organically, you will cross paths with others who share similar ideals. And if not, you must work towards bringing them into the fold once you are in a position to do so. I may always feel like an outsider, both professionally and personally, but that is okay. Imposter syndrome will always exist amongst anyone who's had to work just a little harder to get here. But we must remind ourselves that despite the barriers we have faced and will continue to face, we are here because we belong here in all our differing nonconformist glory. In a world trying to tell you who you are before you even know who you are, you can simply be you. So some days I feel like I am everything, and some days I feel like I am nothing but I am always the sum of all my parts, regardless of what the total is. Coming up, Jean and Charday expand on her impressive career, what inclusivity means to her, and what pumps her inner punk. I'm Lara Jean Korostecki, and I am here with Sharday Hardy. Sharday, welcome. Thanks for having me. Jen and Farah and I all read your essay, and I know Farah was just saying to you before we started this interview that she's already quoted you to uh, her students in a, in a course that she teaches, which, I mean, so much of it is quotable, and it really spoke to me. It happened that I read your essay and then I was going for a walk with my dog the next morning and I was listening to After Hours, which is a Harvard Business Review podcast. And their episode last week was on inclusion, diversity, and celebrating differences. And they had Francis Fry on. And one of the things that they said that I went, oh, oh my goodness, Chardet's essay just talked about this, was professionalism does not mean a 50-year-old white man. Mm-hmm. And the more that we can get that into our heads, that we're not, like, as you say, we're destroying a broken table, 
by challenging this notion that professionalism has to look like this 50-year-old white man that it has for so, so long. So it was really exciting to go, sure, I just talked about this. And now the Harvard Business <laughs> Review is, it's very exciting stuff. I'm just going to quote you a little bit to start us off. So you said in this essay, what I realized was that everything that made me good at my job were the very things that I felt I had to hide because they were so far from the traits of the many people I saw within the industry. So what are those traits? I mean, I just said 50-year-old white man, but that's kind of all in, you know, that's a generalization. But what are those traits that you have that are different from the old notion of leadership? And what does leadership look like for you in your position as VP of Acquisition and Sales? Well, I, I think about this a lot, actually, and I've had many conversations with friends and, and you know, maybe not even just in my specific traits that I hold, but I think that the things that we limit ourselves to within the industry, you know, this avoidance of sexuality, this avoidance of, you know, like you said, what the definition of professionalism is, but inherently we work in the arts, right? So it's like, why do we think that posting a sexy selfie of yourself is not professional when you work in the arts? And, you know, I think being opinionated or stepping over lines or those are kind of the things that I think I always had to hide from myself. I think our connections to different people outside of the industry, I think that's my strongest trait, I think, is just knowing this outside world and hearing those opinions and ideas from those people, you know, what they're consuming, what they're watching. You know, these are the strengths that that make me good at my job. Knowing someone who, you know, isn't a pretentious, like, film student or academic or, <laughs> you know, made a bunch of blockbuster movies, I think, you know, it's more interesting to hear, well, what do you watch? You know, how do we get people make bring content to you that you want to watch? You know, who are we really serving in this industry? Yeah, we can get really insular sometimes and and incestuous, for want of a better word, when we when we continually go back to each other for everything. Mm -hmm. What are people's hobbies outside of the industry? What what gets you excited in your life? We are people first and artists second in my mind because that fuels our art. Yeah, I think that the film industry, and I've said this in other things that I've written, you know, that what we look for within film is a reflection of human experience. And so mm. why do we just keep regurgitating the same stories, the same storylines, the same plots, the same plot twists, you know, when there's when life is so dynamic? You, you said in your essay the now is the time for a cultivation of new voices and for new stories and, and the idea of like without individuality, how do we accomplish this? Which actually the Harvard the After House <laughs> podcast also talks about individuality and this and as a leader the more you celebrate the the individual attributes of those working under you, the more actually you're going to create an inclusive and joyful and um, successful company. Mm -hmm. So from your outside experience, are there any folks like even in the punk community that you admire the heck out of for being their true selves and bringing that kind of inclusivity to the table? I mean, absolutely. The one thing that I would say is like one thing that I tried to make clear in when I do advocacy for the industry, it's that there's no shortage of new voices and talent on the creative side. I think that, you know, there's a real effort to bring in these voices for them to be able to tell their stories. But at the top, they're also just trying to monetize that. So, you know, if you want real change, the people holding the purse strings need to change. I think that's the mm -hmm. way for like an authentic change to happen. 
you know, I think that in terms of people outside the industry that I admire who work in activism or frontline workers who really deal with people on a day-to-day basis, they have never stopped being their authentic self. And sometimes they're just become so entangled in who they are and they can't separate Mm. themselves. But like, that's, that's the real deal. Mm. I'm going to quote you again. I'm just going (laughs) to quote you all this interview. This is Farah and Jen and I were like, this line. So why do we continue to try to fold ourselves into their image just so we can have a seat at a broken table? We all know what that broken table feels like in our own way. Have you ever sat at a table to take it in a different direction that isn't broken? And what did that feel like? Yeah, I think, you know, I started in 2019 really doing a lot of being asked to do panels. And through that, I I met a lot of amazing people. And one of the people I met was Ella from Black Women Film Canada and Leah, who was formerly at the NFB, Leah Marin. And they invited me to these spaces that I had never been a part of, it felt like they were operating so far outside of the inner circle of the Canadian film industry, but they were there and they were creating. And one of the panels I did was at the Soho House that Martha organized, Martha from um, the Black Academy. And it was the most amazing group of women, all women of color speaking there. And it just felt exciting. It felt like Mm. this is the new table. You know, and it's not, we talked about this where it's like this whole table analogy is not a new analogy. You know, a lot of people have talked about the seat at the table. We're in an industry that preys on our passion a little bit. You know, we're just so Mm. excited. We're so excited to be here. We love film so much. You know, we're willing to not make as much money as, as, you know, our superiors or like even our white counterparts, but we want to be there. And I think often about, all of the people, women especially, who are more, were more talented, had more to offer to the industry, but just couldn't hack the pressures, the rejection, the belittlement, the, you know, mm. abuse, whatever, and they left. What would our industry look like if they had all stayed? Well, and and you say they couldn't hack it. Well, of course, yeah, they, of course of not. Course, yeah, like why are we asking? Why are we asking people exactly. to, to do that? And I think that you know the conversations that are happening now are that we're not putting up with this anymore. On set, yeah. we're not putting up with like, well, I was treated like shit, so now you're going to be treated like shit. Sorry, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to swear, but you are. <laughs> I'm. You know, I think that everybody's <laughs> sick of this mentality. It's a toxic mentality, and I think that as new people come into the fold and start taking over positions, like at least people are discussing that now. And and even within women, I think that any, a lot of the female executives that I've seen, they fought their way to the top and props to them, absolutely. But so fearful to bring other women up because they're afraid of mm. losing their own position. Yeah. In season one, we had Graceland Kung was saying, you know, we can all make lemonade. There's enough lemons on the tree. We just, we all, we're all allowed to be here. Yeah. The, the idea of inclusivity is the number one. And, and the more we focus on raising up marginalized communities, actually the more room gets created for everybody. But it, I think it's really hard for people, as you say, who fought so hard because if you're constantly, they probably braced their whole way to the top. Yeah, and I think that I don't want to be proud of my resilience or fortitude. I don't think that's like yeah. something to brag about that like, hey, I withstood all this abuse and I'm still here. Like, I don't think anybody wants to like be proud of that. I want to then, now that I'm in a position to be able to 
bring people up so that they don't feel like they have to withstand that and bring something to this industry without having to suffer, for lack of a better term, you know. Let's all get rid of unnecessary suffering. There's way too much of it in the world. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to just ask you a technical question for our listeners and also mention that Farah Marani wanted to say she recalled working with you at that music festival that you mentioned, that she met you there or when you were working there. And it's just so inspiring to see how you have skyrocketed your career and you've embraced this kind of lesser known but uber important aspect of our industry. So for our listeners who do not know what a VP of acquisitions and sales does, what's your day look like? And and does Excel <laughs> still factor in? Um, yeah, I think it's, you know, one of the things that when I do these panels, I try to teach people about the business side because I think that inherently you're born with creative creativity and you can't be taught that, right? But like our industry is made up of different parts. And so, you know, once you get into that room, are you going to be able to like go head to head with the people that only focus on the business? So yes, Excel rules my life and my (laughs) high school teachers would be laughing at me right now because when I was learning it in high school, I was like, I'm never going to need this in my life. So VP of acquisition. So essentially when a film is made, there's a set of rights that that exist with it. And that's how it gets released into the world and brought to audiences. I review a bunch of films at different stages of their completion. Primarily, if it's not a Canadian film, we're looking at it totally completed. We're screening at markets and festivals and evaluating it and deciding and negotiating to release it within Canada. I then, once we own those rights, I sell them to broadcasters and to the digital platforms, Crave, Netflix, CBC, whoever. And that's what I do. I use a lot of Excel to run the numbers, which is, you know, I run a P&L on every single title, which is a profit and loss statement to decide. I was just about to ask. <laughs> I know. I also once created a document that broke out all these terms so people could understand because I was like, we need to like <laughs> take it from step one because people really don't understand what distribution is. Right. Yeah, so yeah. that's what happens. You know, you, step one, you make the movie. Step two, how do we get it to the world? Sometimes it's easier to bring on a distributor who can take on all the Excel files that you don't want to deal with. (laughs) (laughs) That role is, it's such a vital and not widely known part of how we consume content. Do you feel a responsibility, if any, when you acquire these products in making sure that they reflect the values that you want to live by? I think like naturally my personal taste level does. Obviously, I have to think of things in a business sense or like we won't be able to keep the lights on. I think that, you know, what people don't realize is that there there is you can have both. You know, mm. you can have both things that are commercially successful and attribute to your values. You know, I think that often in acquisitions, you you want to advocate for the things that you want. And sometimes it might be a decision that it's really one for you, one for them, even if you know it's not at the end of the day going to make a ton of money, but it's a beautiful film or you think that it needs to be brought to audiences. Definitely. Yeah. I'm going to do one more quote here. Imposter syndrome will always exist amongst anyone who has to work just a little harder to get here. That one really struck the three of us because we were just thinking about, we're so blessed. This is now season three of this podcast, limited series podcast. We talk to, you know, 10-ish women every year and they're so accomplished. And yet we have yet to come across, including ourselves, any woman in the production of this that, or really in our circles at large, who hasn't at one time experienced the imposter thing. 
What are your thoughts on imposter syndrome? This is now I'm like, do you think we'll ever be able to let that one go and just sit in a celebration of ourselves? No. <laughs> someone once, <laughs> so how do we navigate it someone then? Someone once said to me, though, this is, you can reassure yourself with this, that nobody who is not doing a good job has imposter syndrome because they don't care. Again. Right? Yes, of course. Right? So it's like you can assure yourself that you're likely doing a good job if you feel this way because no one, if you have, if you're not doing a good job, you don't care what anybody thinks about you. If you're just coasting. Yeah. And then you feel it's the entitlement. Yeah. You said something right before we started this interview that I would just love you to repeat. It's circling back to your activism. And it was about the idea of, so we've talked about broken tables and analogy before. Mm-hmm. But it's always worth repeating. And you then brought it into thinking of activism and these phrases as if they are songs. I'm going to let you take it from there because I just thought what you said was so brilliant. Yeah. So I think of these things and these phrases, these ideations as as songs. We're not the first ones to sing these songs, but we're going to be the ones to sing them the loudest until we can deafen the old world. So good. Sharday, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Sade Hardy is a Toronto-based writer, producer, community organizer, and film executive, acquiring new content and securing sales on broadcast and digital platforms for Pacific Northwest Pictures. She has secured a number of films for the company, including the recently released Sound of Metal. Prior to PMP, she was at Entertainment One as a sales executive. In 2018, she helped launch Entertainment One's Diversity and Inclusion Council. She is a longtime advocate for marginalized voices within the industry and has spoken on panels for the Canadian Academy, TIFF Next Wave, Black Youth Pathway to Industry, and Black Women Film Canada, where she serves as a founding board member. Thank you, Charday, for joining us at Company 3 today. Be sure to check out future episodes of Women on Screen Out Loud wherever you get your podcasts. And check out upcoming events and initiatives from Women on Screen at womenonscreen.ca. Until next time, I'm Lara Jean Korostecki. And I'm Jennifer Pogue. And we are Women, Women on Screen. Screen. Thank you to Company 3 Toronto for hosting us and for continuing to support Women on Screen. This podcast was created and produced by Lara Jean Korostecki and Jennifer Pogue. Executive produced by Farmerani, Lauren McKinley, and Kira Murphy. With original music by Erica Procunier. Sound captured by Devin Doucette. And sound mixed by Arturo Fuenmayor at Company 3 in Toronto.